I am excited. I'm pumped, TC. Let's get going. It's time to rock and roll right here as we go to ringside right now with this edition of NWC Slammin'. Hello, everyone. Thanks for checking out the Indie Handshake Wrestling Podcast. I'm Paul Ponte, and my guest today is T.C. Martin, former promoter of the NWC, the National Wrestling Conference. How are you doing today? I'm doing great, Paul. Great to be with you. So... I'm new to learning about the NWC. I've been, you know, paying attention to wrestling my whole life, but for some reason, this one just happened to slip by me until recently when I interviewed Johnny Psychopane. You and must be a youngster, man. You must be a millennial. Not oh, yeah. Not definitely a millennial. NWC, man. What's up with that, Paul? Come on. It's your history, man. You know, I start. it makes sense because I started watching uh, right around 95, 96, so it's like... And then, of course, from there, you only get into independent stuff until later. You know what I mean? But, hey, it's fine. Uh, so, NWC, there, there, was, there was a lot going on. You, ha- you had guys like Sabu and RVD. RVD, especially when he's super young, uh, you know, it hasn't even exploded. He was a tag team wrestler at the time. You know, uh, ECW TV was around, but it wasn't huge. It was a small little regional thing. So, you had guys like, you know, Cactus Jack and everything who had been on WCW, but WCW wasn't exactly the right platform for Cactus Jack's, let's say, style. So, uh, how did you get into promoting the NWC, and what's your history in wrestling? So, let's uh, take it back to uh, when I was a kid. I uh, grew up in Sacramento, California. Uh, I don't know if you're a Bay Area guy, you may be familiar with uh, some of the old-time promotions. Roy Shire was the promoter. Roy yep. did stuff in San Francisco, the Bay Area, and Sacramento was one of his territories. It was called Big Wrestling back in the days. And uh, my father used to take me to the Channel 40 TV studios where they would uh, you know, film the weekly television episodes. So I got indoctrinated into wrestling at a very young age. And of course, in those days, it was Pat Patterson, Ray Stevens, Kenji Shibuya, uh, Peter Mavia, Rocky Johnson, the list goes on and on. So I became a wrestling fan at, at a very young age. Um, as I got older, uh, started to get into you know the entertainment business, uh, sports business, uh, and um, you know I went to school for broadcast journalism, television, radio, all that kind of stuff. But I always had this thing for wrestling. Um, I remember uh, purposely. Uh, getting a satellite dish, I think when I was like 19 or 20 years old, just so I could watch the uh, WWF back in the day in the early 80s, the uh, Madison Square Garden shows. So the first Monday of the month, they would have these just classic shows. And of course, we were watching the WWF back in those days with the superstars of wrestling on Saturday afternoon, et cetera, et cetera. So it was enough to uh, meet uh, some of the promoters on the West Coast in Sacramento, and I was able to get involved with the WWF as their ring announcer for the West Coast. So I was uh, doing uh, the ring announcing for the Sacramento shows at the classic Sacramento Memorial Auditorium, also down in the Bay Area and you know other parts uh, throughout Northern California. So at that point in time, I got a chance to meet a lot of those wrestlers, and this was the you know mid '80s to late '80s or so. Uh, when I moved to Las Vegas, I moved to Las Vegas to do my national sports talk radio show. And at that point in time, we would talk about everything. And there was a local casino owner uh, there that owned the Silver Nugget, and he was a boxing promoter. 
So he knew my um, interest in boxing. I was doing a ring announcing uh, for top rank boxing and other stuff of that nature. And then my wrestling background kind of got, got brought up through a mutual friend. And he said, I would love to promote wrestling here at the Silver Nugget. So we were doing monthly boxing shows there. And he goes, how can we do this wrestling? And I said, well, I said, fortunately, I've got you know some contacts in the business. So let's let's see going about uh, doing this thing. So it started out as just, you know, initial conversation. And then there was some local talent there in Las Vegas. Uh, they were put in touch with me. And next thing we know that uh, we were going to start a wrestling organization based out of Las Vegas. Basically, it was going to be backed by the owner of the Silver Nugget. Uh, he was going to you know, put up the money. I was going to you know, run the promotion and basically utilize my contacts that I had built over a number of years and build this wrestling promotion. Like you mentioned, ECW was an East Coast-based uh, thing, so a lot of people on the West Coast really weren't familiar with it. The only thing they were familiar with was the WWF at the time and WCW. So uh, I've always had this you know, entrepreneurial spirit uh, you know, promoting, you know, events, uh, being very involved in boxing, doing entertainment events, concerts, radio, all that sort of thing. So I said, you know, if we're going to do this thing, we're, we're going to do it right. And, uh, you know, reached out to some of the guys who I met during my course at the WWF and said, Hey, we're going to, you know, build this promotion from ground zero. So I thought it was very, very important to not only latch, latch on to the, the national guys who were basically free agents, so to speak at the time, just guys that just left the WWF or were still with the WWF, you know, maybe on a per event contract basis. But I thought it was also important to build our own local talent as well. So that's how the NWC basically began. We had our venue, the Silver Nugget Casino. We had a owner that was very, you know, interested in capitalizing on, you know, bringing crowds into this pavilion that they had. And uh, that's how it, it, it started. And then it, it, it gained steam and we, I decided that we we're going to actually build a roster. So we're not going to treat it like a lot of independents where you're going to reach out to guys periodically. All of our guys were under contract. And uh, so we approached it that way. And we were forced to do that through the Nevada State Athletic Commission because at that point in time, boxing and wrestling, everything had to go under the athletic commission. So you, you had to have all these guys under contract either by show or you know, through your organization and uh, because it was legitimized. It wasn't known as entertainment at that point in time. It was known as an athletic event. So all of the wrestlers had to go through the proper testing. They had to get licenses. If you're a ring announcer, you had to have a license. If you were a doctor, wow. a timekeeper, all of that stuff. So again, that's that's how it started. And that's where, where, where it built. And then slowly but surely, after doing a few shows, I said, you know, to tell the story properly, we're going to have to involve TV. Basically, you know, using the model that Vince McMahon had, had done when he started on the East Coast and slowly but surely branched out, you know, to the West Coast and throughout the United States and eventually through the world. So, um, you know, I decided that we need to do a weekly television show. So I orchestrated that where basically we would do one, once a month cards and we would do between 12 and 14 matches on that show. And all of these matches were videotaped. So we could get at least three or four episodes for a one hour Saturday afternoon show. We aired on the local Warner Brothers affiliate uh, Saturday afternoon at, at, at 12 noon. And again, I'm a firm believer that you have to have the television to tell the narrative and to build the story for the live event. And it just gained steam. And next thing you know, you know, we have a, a great array of talent that I was able to put together. 
and uh, and we were rolling in Las Vegas. That's such a nice confluence of events happening. So, you know, you just happen to be at this place where, because a lot of the problem is finding money for starting wrestling. So you happen to be a place where you have a guy who has funding and he's like, let's do wrestling. And you're like, I know wrestling. Boom, there you go. Then you have a lot of guys who, like you said, were were not under contract. The reason they're not under contract for anyone who's listening and not understanding the business at the time, WCW was not a threat to the WWF. So WWF didn't do that thing they did later where they just kept people under contract even though they weren't using them for years at a time. So all these guys were available to use. And so you end up getting these big names, like you said, with a mix of local guys. And to do that is pretty amazing, especially for the time period. Now, when this is happening and you start seeing all these guys, I found it also found it interesting, by the way, that you did uh, announcing for the WWF as well. You know, I guess at the time, like nowadays, they have their own guys that who do announcing that travel with them. Correct. Yeah, but at the time they were like, it was we, all regional at that point in time. Yeah. So, like for example, uh, the late great Howard Finkel, who just uh, you know passed a couple weeks ago, he was the guy in New York. He was he worked for Vince, so he would do all of the East Coast stuff. But every time they branched out to the West Coast, Southern California, they had their, their ring announcer, Billy Anderson, who ended up working with was there down there. There was a different guy in Chicago. So for Northern California, we had a guy uh, that had done the old big time wrestling, like I mentioned, you know, back in the 70s. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, he got ill and he passed away. So I was able to step in with him. Uh, Red Bastine was the agent at that point in time. So basically, uh, I got introduced to Red Bastine and told Red I would, I would love to do this. He, w- he was able to give me a shot. That led me to um, uh, introducing myself to Bob Cartago, uh, who worked with Vince and, you know, at the national office of the WWF for, for many, many years. So that's how I got into it uh, initially. Like you said, it was all regional at the time. Wow. So now you're running shows. You got stuff going on. You know, before you had been mixing yourself into the business, but now you're full-on kind of running a, bu- a business in wrestling, what's the first thing you start noticing, oh, this part of it is not how I thought it would be? Uh, I think that, you know, when it came, pretty much I had a good I had a good beat on it. But again, I did thrust myself into it, and I'm not going to say it was a total one-man operation because I did have some key people uh, around me, but I was... You know, you know, running basically all aspects of it from, you know, uh, you know, getting the wrestlers, doing the marketing, doing the promotion, uh, doing the broadcasting element, arranging the matches, overseeing the ticketing, I mean, all of that stuff. Uh, slowly but surely, we started adding some pieces as we started to grow, and then I uh, brought a guy on to handle like the merchandising, and I saw okay where this was going, and you know, you know, putting together, uh, you know, wrestlers merchandise, our own NWC merchandise. Uh, videos, et cetera, et cetera. So I think the thing for me was probably when it came time down to really do the very first show to get the wrestlers involved and say, okay, uh, what are we going to do? So I had the matchups and I knew, you know, where I wanted to go and they would just sit down with me and say, okay, you know, who's going over tonight? What's the verdict and this and that. And I probably didn't realize at that point in time, you know, how much that they were like relying on me to determine the outcome of the match. And I think what really got me over with the guys was that I gave them a lot of freedom. Mm. So when we would sit down and determine, you know, the matches, because I wasn't privy to that stuff when I was announcing with the WWF. Okay, I didn't go into 
those meeting rooms earlier in the day. I didn't go into the locker room when they're planning out the matches. So that was probably the element that I said, okay, you know, this is where I've, I've, I've got to take, take control over and do. And I found it that it just clicked immediately, just like that, where the guys would come back to me and they go, I would say, okay, here's what I want. So we got, you know, whatever we got cactus and Sabu. I'm looking for, you know, we need 20 minutes. Okay. We're going, and I would get kind of detailed. I'd say, okay, cactus, you're going to enter into the ring first. I was big on entrance music and, and what we were going to do with that. That was before the time of pyrotechnics and all that Sabu, you're going to come in later. Okay. Cactus, you're going to attack him. Boom, boom, boom. And we're going to do this. And this is going to go out to the crowd and this and that the time. And they would just, they came back to me and said, that's awesome. And they loved it that they actually had freedom to do what they wanted to for a bulk of the match where I wasn't scripting everything. I just basically told them how I wanted to start, how I wanted it to end. And as long as you guys get there, uh, I trust you and you trust me. And that word got out through, through all the guys that like, Hey man, this is, this is a great organization to work for. Yeah. Cause you know, they're, they're professionals, they're adults. If they know their craft, like if they didn't know their craft, you wouldn't hire them. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's and especially especially some of them, you know, who had worked in the WWF at the time, you know, like guys like Road Warriors or whoever, you know, they're they're used to from all accounts uh, a very micromanaging style when they're doing when they're working that way and that's something what the guys like is like wow he's gonna give us you know you know some freedom here where we never had that in the WWF. Yeah. So how were the crowds in Vegas at first? Did it seem to get more of a wrestling crowd as it went on or was did it start out pretty heavy immediately? Because Vegas, you always hear like positives and negatives as far as Vegas as a wrestling town. So how did you find it when you were doing it? I found that uh, it was never really sparse in the beginning. So our arena uh, held about 1,800 people. And I'd have to go back and look, but I would say probably for the first show, we probably had, you know, a half full building at that, at that point in time. And through the casino industry, you always have that ability to comp people. You comp your VIP players. Now, this is Silver Nugget. It's not Caesars. It's not the MGM. So it's a local neighborhood casino in North Las Vegas. And again, not at the, the, the best end of Las Vegas as well. So, you know, their VIP players were lower level, you know, you know, for a local, so to speak. So you could always, you know, have that where the casino owner wanted to say, hey, we want to, you know, we want to uh, spiff some of our VIP clients. We want to give them tickets and that sort of thing. But for the most part, you know, it, it, we were selling tickets. I remember back in those days, again, we're dealing with, the, you know, the mid-90s to the late 90s, and ticket prices were 18 and $12. 18 for ringside and, and 12 for GA. And the way we had it was uh, the reserve seats, I think, were like the first, uh, you know, like, eight rows. And then after that, it was GA after that. So then, you know, with the product and with the names that we're bringing in, uh, you know, it, it caught fire pretty well. Then once we launched the TV show, you know, probably about six months into it, then again, you're able to tell your story. People can follow along. So I would say that we started getting sellouts probably, uh, you know, three, four, five shows into it. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So you're, wow. This is, yeah. So that's like a rocket basically your, your promotion yeah, at the time, yeah, you know, yeah. Yeah, and I say that it was the reason for the success is Las Vegas would clamor to the WWF shows. Okay, but the WWF wasn't coming there regularly. They may mm-hmm. come there maybe once or twice, much less than us. And there were wrestlers who actually lived in the city. Uh, Bear, you know, Godfather, uh, he lived there. Um, one of the first guys that I met was Keith Height, 
and he was an up and coming wrestler and he worked with, with bear, uh, at the crazy horse and they were bouncers there and, and Keith, you know, wanted to, to get involved in wrestling. So he approached me, uh, we had a mutual friend in the casino business and he said, you know, Hey brother, you know, uh, you know, I, 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 I know bear, I know the Godfather, I know a couple of the other boys, we can bring these guys into this and that. And then meanwhile, we were going to bring Keith up. So I said, that's great. So at that point in time, I thought it was very important for us to, to have local talent as well too. And um, so Keith was pretty well trained. Uh, Bear actually trained Keith. And Keith says, I've got this gimmick that I want to try out on you. What do you think? And he goes, it's the thug. And so it was, he was a white guy, but you know, he was kind of a hard ass and, and he had the gift of gab. He, he worked, he was a little bit stiff. He admitted that in the very, very beginning, but uh, you know, this is a character that we felt that we could, uh, we could build. So we sat down, okay, where are we going to build this guy from? Okay. You're the thug. We're going to make you from Detroit. Okay. You're going to be a hard ass white boy from Detroit, Michigan, and you're going to insult people. You're going to be a heel. And, and, and it worked. It, it worked. So we had guys like that locally. Then I teamed up, you know, the first thing I had to do was, okay, find a ring. Okay. We didn't have a ring. We had a boxing ring at the Silver Nugget, but we didn't have a wrestling ring. So I was turned on to Jesse Hernandez, who was down in, in Riverside. And Jesse you know, had trained uh, Sting along with the Ultimate Warrior, along with Bill Anderson. So I got in touch with Jesse. And uh, Jesse was providing the ring and doing all this stuff for the WWF shows. Then he had his own independent promotion down in San Bernardino. And uh, I said, Jesse, I'm going to be running this promotion. Uh, I'd love to use you. And Jesse goes, well, you know, I'm also a referee. I go, beautiful. You can provide the ring. You can be the referee. And he goes, and I have a wrestling school. I go, better yet. How about if we work together and we develop talent? So through Jesse's wrestling school, he would have all of these guys. And then I would go down and visit him. Uh, every few weeks, and when he felt that guys were ready, then he would say, hey, come on down, T, I want you to look at these guys, and and if they're ready for you, then we'll develop a gimmick for them, uh, a character for them, and then we'll bring them in. So a lot of our young guys, or, or our jobbers were at the time, were guys from Jesse's school. The guys that we felt had a lot of potential, then we actually built them into something. Uh, Tom Howard uh, was a guy who had a great potential, and he had a had a gimmick as KGB and it was like kind of a Russian guy coming off, you know, with Rocky Five with you know Dolph Lundgren. He had that look. And I said, you know, this is good, but I'm not sure that we want to go this direction with a with a Russian, you know, type of thing. You know, we had the Iron Sheik and this and that. I thought that was kind of played out. Go, well, there's another character that we can develop. He goes, he had he designed his own outfits and everything, come in with a certain board, and he was kind of a young high flyer type of guy that developed under Jesse. I said, that's what we're going to use. So he was one of those young guys that we built. He got uh, a lot of play in Mexico. So he was working in Mexico, uh, you know, under a mask and this and that, under a different character, but he had a lot of good training. So we would take guys like that that we felt, okay, could be marketable, that were good workers. And again, at this point in time, we were really wanting to try to promote the high flyers and that sort of thing. So that's what led me to bringing in Sabu and Rob Van Dam and other people like that. So next thing you know, like I said, not only do we develop our own talent, but we're getting these indie guys and, you know, we did have a little bit of a budget so we could fly guys in. Uh, we never overpaid guys, but what we found out was the guys had such a good time. And I come from that entertainment background. If you treat people right, you know, they're going to treat you right. And what they loved about, you know, coming to Vegas and working for me was, number one, it was Las Vegas. Uh, they were going to get fed. They're going to get put in a hotel. 
They're going to get paid well, which, as you know, a lot of guys in those days were not paying guys well. They were getting stiff, and they were under contract. And that's what they liked about it. There was this security that they were going to get their plane tickets, you know, uh, and the hotel was comp in the rooms as well. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So, See? you know, you, you were getting everything again. We were, I was treating it like the entertainment business if you're promoting a concert. And this is what we had to do in the boxing industry as well, too. And, uh, I think that's what the guys liked about. It. So once word got on, like, Hey, there's this promotion in Las Vegas. This guy treats us well. He gives us creativity. Everything is so well organized. It's not, you know, fly by the seat of your pants. And there was that, you know, notion, which, you know, to this day, I mean, people look back on it and said that we were ahead of our time. And, you know, the NWC was ahead of its time. And all it was is I didn't like a lot of the new direction where the WWF, WCW was going. I wanted to bring back kind of the old school thing. And it was still relevant enough, like going back to those days that I mentioned in Madison Square Garden with the ring entrances where the crowd was heavily involved, not all the pyrotechnics and this and that. And just, you know, get involved, get the get the guys involved, let them work, let them engage with the fans, let, let us build this, this territory together. And again, you know, when you had an NWC card, you knew who the roster was. Slowly but surely, we would add guys as they became available. So again... Our roster, you know, was Sabu. It was Cactus Jack. It was Terry Funk. It was the Honky Tonk Man. You know, it was the Ultimate Warrior. Uh, you know, again, we had our, our local guys with Bill Anderson. We had Bobby Bradley. Uh, you know, and and that's where we went with this. We brought in the Bushwhackers, and then we would test that to see how it, how it worked out. You know, and again, Tito Santana was one of our first guys. Bruce the Barber Beefcake, uh, Nails, and you bring back the guys that you feel not only can can draw crowds, but are they trustworthy? Are they going to follow the program? Are they going to be committed to you? And, you know, again, like any business, you, you weed out the ones you feel are not right for you and you keep the guys that are right. And this truly became a family. The NWC was a family. And if you talk to any of those guys, talk to Johnny Blake, Johnny Cycle Payne, he was one of those guys. Oh yeah. He had a lot of fond things to say about the company. And I thought, this is like an interesting, you know, kind of not so widely reported on like a wonderful piece of the 90s in wrestling. So that's what got me really interested in it. Um, I might have to hit you up to see if you have any more of that, any of that footage or something. Cause you know, uh, cause you know, you can only find so much online. Yes. Uh, I've got all the masters and, and honestly, that has kind of haunted me over the years, uh, you know, cause we released uh, a best of total chaos Best of the NWC Volume One that was on VHS it was 99 minutes, and we we would sell out of that all the time. But then you know after we disbanded everything, I kind of let everything go, but I kept everything. But now with this kind of you know, and I get hit by this all the time from friends, from colleagues, from people who just you know you got to do this, you got you know it's you know the independent scene is it, it, coming back, and you know my old business partner he says we got to do a reunion. I go, well, but all the guys are either passed on or they can't work anymore. How are we, how are we going to do a reunion? Well, we can do, you know, a round table discussion or we can do something like that. So I admit I have lacked with that. People have been hitting me up for years as we hit this summer, this would be the 25 year anniversary uh, kind of the NWC. And before COVID-19 came down, I was contemplating of re- doing a reunion and getting guys back together um, because not only did we promote here in Las Vegas, uh, but we promoted my hometown of Sacramento as well. So we had pretty two strong territories. And, and in Sacramento, we were promoting at the Memorial Auditorium. And my business partner, my concert business, Jim Gonzalez, 
he was tied in with 24 hour fitness. So again, we kind of had that built in sponsorship. So when, uh, you know, the silver nugget kind of went away after time, uh, we were able to continue the Sacramento promotion. And, uh, I moved back there in the late nineties as well too. So we had two strong territories So people in Sacramento and people in Las Vegas and people on the West coast, they were very familiar with the NWC during that time. So, you know, for some people, maybe, you know, we were, you know, Dave Meltzer would come to our shows. He would write about us in the wrestling observer. We were gaining steam. Uh, you know, but if you were, uh, you know, a younger guy, or if you lived in, you know, maybe down South or something like that, maybe you weren't familiar with us. You'd only hear about us, you know, through, you know, the magazine, the wrestling observer, the newsletters, that sort of thing. But, you know, people on the West coast were here during that time. They were very aware of the NWC. Yeah. So let's go into a little bit of, uh, you know, you had all these big names, big personalities, uh, guys that, you know, uh, some of them, you know, the guys like the warrior, the Sheik. We, we've heard, we've all heard the internet stories, uh, and you innuendo and all that about all them. Uh, were there any moments and you don't have to name any names here or anything or anything like that. This is not a shoot podcast. That's not what I'm about, but are there, do you ever find yourself with some of these bigger names, uh, frustrated if they weren't, let's say maybe I, I like to say on this, sometimes people think they're bigger than the show. So, uh, did you ever find that with any of the guys? There were a couple guys that I mentioned where I would use one time. And if you got invited back, that means, you know, you, you were good to work with and mm. you we were going to be part of this family because again, you know, we treat, I treated this really like I come from the team sports world too. You know, I, I coached, you know, basketball and baseball and that sort of thing. So I, I really treated this around ourselves with maybe 15 to 20 of the best guys that want to, to grow with this and be part of the team. And there are a couple of guys that felt that maybe they were, they were bigger. And again, they didn't have any use for me or the company uh, if they were going to be like that. So there were a couple of guys that were like that. Um, you know, the warrior situation, I'll talk openly about that. I mean, that was a, a major coup for, for me to get him. And, but ultimately it, it ended the company and ended uh, the Las Vegas run uh, for what happened with him. Uh, again, there's a lot of stories out there, and uh, and again, I have no problem, you know, you know, you know, speaking about it. Um, yeah, let's get into that. I mean, that's, I mean, yeah. I mean, I mean a, the fact that you even had the warrior for a little bit, the fact that you even had the warrior for a little bit is already. I mean, WCW couldn't do it. Right. right. They had a fake warrior. <laughs> right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. So uh, as we're gaining steam, and you're seeing that the the roster that that we're building, um, the warrior became available you know, WWF and he wasn't working with Vince anymore. Uh, I, w- I went to uh, Bill Anderson, uh, who actually trained Warrior. So, you know, we could probably get Warrior, you know, you know, here. Uh, I said, well, let me reach out to him and, and I'll talk to him to see if he's interested. So we had a, uh, a couple phone conversations. He was very intrigued about what was happening. He was living outside of, of Phoenix, Arizona, Scottsdale at the time. So it was very close to him. He was hearing the buzz and he knew what was happening, this and that. And in the beginning, it was like, okay, brother, I'll come work for you, but this is going to be my price tag. And I said, no problem. So let me weigh this to see if it makes sense for us. And uh, so, again, we had X amount of dollars that we could budget for every show. So knowing that he was going to you know, cost more money than anybody else, um, I said, okay, so maybe we'll scale down you know, a show because we know if we bring the warrior onto this show – 
that you know we're we're going to reap the rewards. We're going to get the benefit here, and uh, you know we'll we'll sell out. So I wanted to bring him in and and build something with him. So I kind of re- we already had Honky Tonk. So I talked to Honky and I talked to some of the other guys. I said, "What do you think of this guy?" Uh, so they told me some of the stories and this and that. They go, but you know what? You know, if, if you think that you can deal, work with this guy, you know, work with him, we'll, we'll work with him. No, no problem whatsoever. So uh, we came to an agreement and we brought him down for a show. I told him what was going to be entailed in this, that you're going to come early. You're going to do interviews. Uh, we're going to make you part of, of this company. We'll announce a signing. Uh, we, we want you to do the television interviews and everything. He did everything. Uh, that, that I asked him to do. So we teased it the month before. So again, we decided to, if we're going to do this, we're going to do this right. So I'm, I remember announcing that, you know, what we did, I took this page from Vince and, and Howard Finkel. So before our main event of that, of that uh, month's show, I would always make sure I had at least four or five matches ready to go for next month. So we can announce that night, you know, the next date, and then drive people to go buy tickets immediately. And that's exactly, we would sell probably two or 300 tickets. You know, after that match was over, they would just run to the box office and do that. And so I said, okay, we're going to make this big announcement. So we did an angle with Honky Talk where he's coming on out, this and that. And Honky says, you know, I've wrestled everybody you put in front of me. I need some competition, this and that, blah, 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 blah. So we did this big old thing. And I said, okay, Honky, you're going to get your chance. And I said, the main event coming on, you know, you know, July 22nd, whatever, blah, blah. It's a Huggy Tuck man and the newest member of the NWC, the ultimate warrior. And people just popped. They couldn't believe it. It was it was crazy. So we did that. And then the weeks leading up to that, you know, we shot our video for TV interviews and everything. And, and he was a pleasure to work with. We did that show. Uh, he came in. He was fine. He saw how we ran everything. After that first show was over, uh, he said, I want to be involved with this. Um, he goes, I don't want to be involved as just a guy that you're paying. He goes, I want to be your partner in this business. And so um, I took that to heart. Uh, we had conversations and I made him a partner in the business. So this uh, detailed me going down to Scottsdale. And basically what he wanted out of the deal was he was starting his own wrestling school, Warrior University. So he wanted to be able to promote that in the Las Vegas market. So it didn't really interfere what Jesse was doing because Jesse was doing his thing in San Bernardino. And so, again, so we would run commercials during our television show to promote Warrior University. And it was like kind of a win-win. It got to the point, a lot of people were shocked at this, where now I wasn't even paying Warrior to be on the cards because he was able to get a percentage of the gate. And Mm. he was fine with that. So again, we we're working very closely to get with that. And again, he was with us and everything, you know, uh, you know, was fine. Uh, there was a point in time that, you know, his business was struggling, you know, back in Arizona. And, um, you know, at the our, our last show that we ended up doing, um, we outgrew the Silver Nugget because we were drawing bigger crowds. Uh, but the main reason we left the silver nugget was the owner who I mentioned, he was now out of the business and, um, the original owner of the silver nugget, uh, came back and he really wasn't interested in doing wrestling anymore. Uh, the boxing guy who was running the silver nugget was actually part owner, 
boxing was done now. So now it was only wrestling. And the original of the Silver Nugget says, I really kind of want to get away from this. Uh, you know, we were bringing in money, but I don't think he was real happy with the crowds that were drawn. And he didn't want to be an event-based event you know, type of thing. He wanted to get back into the gaming aspect, bowling, and other things that they were doing there. So we said, okay, we're going to move this back. Actually started our first show was at the Aladdin, and uh, so we it was an anniversary show that we were doing, and we had you know close to four thousand people, which we couldn't fit in the Silver Nugget, but we had at the Aladdin, and the Aladdin also was not only doing concerts, but they had done boxing shows as well. So we would have the state the uh, the ring on the stage like they would for boxing, so people were kind of used to that. But um, after the one show. Um, you know, getting back to what you alluded to, one guy feeling that he's bigger than the promotion, uh, Warrior uh, basically talked his way into getting into the box office and stole the gate, gate receipts from the box office that night at the Aladdin. So the boys weren't getting paid that night. Oh, wow. So they knew uh, exactly what happened. So I had to go back after the show and told them what happened. Again, being the family that we all were, uh, they said, don't worry about it, team. That's the way this guy is. We kind of knew that. Uh, unfortunately, you know, we had to kind of, I had to learn the hard way with that. And, uh, you know, basically that was the reason that we quit promoting in Las Vegas. Wow. So uh, and this is these crowds for context. You know, everyone talks about the ECW arena. I've been to the ECW arena. I went and I watched a wrestling show there a couple of years ago for Luke Hawks, one of the guests on this podcast. His company ran a show there. The ECW arena fits 1,300 people. And they managed to, you know, gain this, you know, nationwide buzz from a thing that held 1,300 people. You're talking about 4,000 people. Right. Like, these are the kind of numbers you're doing. And then for this to happen, you just got to feel like this is a kick in the balls. Big time, big time. So at that point in time, okay, We've, we have all this momentum. Uh, how can we continue, continue this now? Because basically we lost our original investor. We lost our home. Again, you know, doing shows at the Aladdin um, for special shows, anniversary shows, you know, we want to get back to, to the Silver Nugget and, and do our shows there. We can't do that. And Las Vegas really didn't have a venue that had that, that same size and had that atmosphere. And I think if you talk to all the guys that – that work for me, they'll tell you that silver nugget was just an amazing place because it wasn't pristine, but it just had like kind of old world feel of like, and you know, putting 1500 to 1800 people in that place. It was raucous. We had a great sound system in there. Uh, you know, the crowd was authentic and again, just moving to a bigger venue, it just didn't make sense. And when you move to a bigger venue, you have to deal with union costs Okay, you're dealing with union labor, stagehands, all that sort of thing. And okay, for a one-off, you know, we can get away with that. But the bottom line is, I mean, the Aladdin wants crowds of four, five, seven thousand in there. If we drew a thousand or twelve hundred, they're not going to want that. So again, you had a nineteen thousand seat Thomas and Mack Center. The MGM just came in with fifteen thousand fans. You know, as we know, Herb Abrams tried that. <laughs> that didn't work. You know, drawing three hundred people there. Uh, so it's like. We didn't have that perfect venue anymore. And that was probably, you know, those were the reasons why uh, we basically had to shut down Las Vegas. And we moved the promotion pretty much to Sacramento because we had a 3,500 seat venue in Sacramento, but 
we weren't completely filling that, but we were still getting 2,000 or 2,200 there. And that still had a raucous feeling because that was the old historic Memorial Auditorium. And Sacramento embraced that because they remember those big time wrestling days. They remember the WWF, you know, going to that same building. We weren't big enough where we could go to Arco Arena that seated 17,000. So we had our niche. But then again, that was kind of an expensive place to So without sponsorship, and without regular television revenue, it, w- it was hard to sustain it back in those days. And so, you know, at that point in time, it was it was just impossible to to run it anymore. Uh, and I felt bad for the guys because uh, they were part of this, uh, but they understood. And like they said, they go, this was, you know, the highest level of an independent that they've ever, ever worked for before. And again, you know, we were called an independent, but the way we ran the company and the organization with TV and the crowds we were uh, having, the roster talent we had, uh, I always kind of thought that maybe independent was a little bit of a slap in the face, but I understand why you say that because there's WWF at the time, WCW, and then there's everybody else. Even ECW wasn't independent. You know, we were regional. We did our thing. We were very ahead of our time at that point in time. And again, for me, I just wasn't a wrestling promoter. I was doing national local sports talk radio. I was promoting concerts. I was in the boxing industry. So, you know, I could step away from wrestling, even though I miss it to this day. Uh, but I could still, you know, make a living doing other things. Cause I had like basically a three or four prompt career. Yeah. Have you, did you ever come across warrior again after that's that that situation so, happened. Uh, you know, we had some conversations, lawsuits filed uh, to to try to you know get that money you know back because he got you know and you can do the math. If our average ticket price is around fifteen to eighteen dollars, and we probably maybe had you know maybe five hundred comps. So you say that you know there's 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 probably three thousand. Hey, do the math. Do the math. You can imagine how much money that that, that he went away with. And in his mind, it was like, you know, we did have conversation after we we had a, a conversation, you know, a day or two after that. And basically, hey, brother, I've been I've been, I, I, I've been funding this. Uh, I'm a star. Uh, I'm worth that. And I go, yeah, but what about everybody else? What about what you walked into? That's not my concern. Uh, you know, I had the right to do that and in his mind. And, you know, I would spend time with him, you know whether it's here in Vegas or going down to, to his home in, in Scottsdale. And I remember, you know, watching him pop 20 pills a day. And at that point in time, I would just, you know, see the rage that he would have. I would see the change of emotions. So, you know, we knew that there. Dude was not was, well. Yeah, he's not well. He's yeah. not. And it's too bad because we had a really great bond. We did have a great friendship. We did. And, you know, we had a, a business relationship. And, you know, maybe I could have said no to him about, you know, coming in as a part. But then again, you know, it's the ultimate warrior. And if he if he can bring money, which he was, you know, he was funding a good portion, you know, that especially after we left the, the Silver Nugget. And uh, it, it made a lot of sense. But there was always the voice in the back of my mind and hear from other people, watch him, brother, be careful of him. And so then when that news broke, um, people, you know, it didn't make me look like the bad guy. It made me, you know, basically look like, you know, the victim, which I wasn't, you know, I don't want to be portrayed as the victim, but the truth was that's exactly what happened. And, you know, a lot of the guys, they, they feel bad. 
because they knew what he did. They knew the type of guy he was from working with them before. I always try to give everyone the benefit of the doubt. So I'll say we had good times and we had some bad times. We had more good times with the warrior I did personally than the bad times. But, uh, you know, ultimately, uh, if that didn't happen, who knows how much longer that, that could have continued, you know, in Vegas. Maybe it doesn't continue because, you know, we, uh, we lost our business partner at the venue, which was the perfect venue. But, you know, we still had fans and we had a, a throng of fans. Uh, they were still wanting the product. But uh, at that point in time, it just uh, we couldn't continue. That must have seemed so frustrating for the new owner to be like, yeah, we don't want this. It's like, but it's making money. Like, why? Why? Like, I get you don't like it, but uh, that's kind of the frustration that uh, that WCW had with Turner. Once Turner wasn't running things anymore, they were kind of like, we don't like wrestling. So and they're like, you realize we're the only thing making you guys money besides sports. Like, but, you know, I guess some people I just it's always going to be the stigma with wrestling. If the person who's who's funding things is not into wrestling, it's this this black mark, this spot. They're like, mm, we can't be seen as as this thing, you right. know. Exactly, exactly. And I think that th- that owner, uh, again, as I found out later, he was basically kind of leasing the property and the operations to this other guy who they had problems with, and he had problems. And so I think, well, if he was involved in that then I want to take that away. We don't want to be involved with it. And we did do one or two shows with that owner. And for him, he just didn't care for it. He he, he didn't care for it. The money was there. We still were drawing the same crowds, but he just wanted to step away. At that point in time, he wanted to go through a remodel and he wanted to kind of clean up the place. And he just, like I said, didn't want to be known as a sports venue or wrestling or boxing and bringing in that element he he wanted to take that space and keep the space and basically you know lease it out for uh, private parties or you know you know weddings receptions Mm. because that was guaranteed money for him and he didn't have to worry about you know people smashing tables and going up into the casino and have you know cactus slamming the uh, sabu on the blackjack table you know and all of those things that, that happened and they looked at it like oh this is there's too much risk versus reward here. And again, he, he didn't like that. And I can't blame him for that. But again, he didn't realize that, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm in control of this. And, you know, there are so many great stories. We just go on for hours and hours about that even the previous owner, you know, uh, didn't know about the business. But he trusted me. I mean, two classic ones, I'll tell you if you want to hear. So Absolutely. And we're going to do a 20-man battle royal. And uh, so we announced that, that you know, thousand dollar you know over the top battle royal winner ten thousand dollars so we announced that tickets go on sale immediately after the show is over the owner says come into my office i need to talk to you right away and i go what he goes tc have you lost your mind what are you doing he goes we can't give ten thousand dollars away to to the winner of the battle royal you just promoted ten thousand dollars that we're giving away are you out of your mind this guy's like losing it and i'm just like sitting there just like smiling he goes what are you smiling about? I go, and his name was Al. I said, Al, are you done? He goes, yes, but I'm fuming right now. He goes, my phone's ringing off the hook. What are we going to do here? I go, they're not getting $10,000. What do you mean they're not getting $10,000? You advertised it. You said the winner's going to get $10,000. Those wrestlers are going to come after me. They're going to sue me. We can't give them ten grand. I go, Al, they're going to get the 500 bucks or the 750 bucks, the 1000 bucks that we're paying for that night. Why? I go, 
Oh, they're under contract. <laughs> it's a work, brother. <laughs> it's a work. It's not that way. It's for the fans. He goes, we really don't have to pay the winner 10 grand. No, he goes, that's ingenious. <laughs> I mean, can you imagine... If you like just the, the 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 logic of saying, okay, you got a group of 20 guys, right? You're like, okay, hey guys, we're gonna completely predetermine this. So I'm just gonna decide to give one of you 10 grand. <laughs> <laughs> you wanna talk about starting a riot? <laughs> exactly. exactly. Yeah. So, uh, and again, when we did the desert death match, where I said, again, and again, so ECW was doing their stuff. Uh, and again, having Cactus and having Sabu. It was like, okay, we're, we're going to bring this version of the West Coast, but we're going to have our own little spin on it. And so, again, you know, we did the Desert Death Match with weapons. And, you know, we had tables. We had chairs. We had light fixtures. Uh, you know, we had bottles. Uh, you know, we had all of these things. And then when they took it out to the casino, people said, did they just do that on their own? It's like, no, everything was scripted area. We're dealing with a casino. We got to protect the, the casino, uh, the, you know, the gaming control board, all of those things. But did they, you know, uh, when they went out, you know, out of the arena, up the stairs in the casino, we had cameras, you know, in position to follow them and everything. I mean, of course that went viral. It was fantastic. And yes, literally there was, you know, a body slam or a suplex in the middle of the sports book. There was uh, a head slam where chips were flying on the table. And, uh, you know, so, uh, you know, the casino owner was a little bit maybe shocked about that. But then again, the risk for reward was, do you see the play that you're getting, you know, out of this? Uh, but all of that was, was, uh, was scripted. It was, you know, under control. And again, you put that in the hands of pros like Cactus and Sabu, uh, there, there's no need to worry about it. They knew where the boundaries were. Terry Funk, another guy, you know, when he would, you know, go into to the popcorn machine and the concession area, you know, he, he knew exactly what, what he was doing. And uh, again, that was part of the freedom that the guys had, but they knew which boundaries and which lines they could cross and they couldn't. And it, it was great. And it brings the illusion to the audience where anything could happen. I'm going to go check out the show and you could just be out getting some snacks and who knows what's going on. Right. Well, a perfect example of that is, so we did the Iron Sheik. Now, I don't know if you're familiar with the Sheik and Iranian clubs. Mm Mm-hmm. But do we, you know, he was a legendary wrestler, you know, Olympic wrestler back in the day. And one of his training methods were these Iranian clubs. And each one of these clubs weighed about 35 pounds. And so... Uh, that's how she trained and he would whirl these things over, over the head. So she says, Hey, I want to, uh, I want to bring the clubs. Uh, I go, great, bring the clubs and we're going to do a gimmick with this. And uh, so she and I sat down and what we, he did is bring the clubs into the ring and he would say, okay, um, I'm going to do, you know, however many that I can do, we're going to bring anyone out of the audience. If they can do half as many as the sheet can, then we're going to give them $500. So you got all these strong arm guys. Like, hey, I'm going to come in here. My bodybuilders, weightlifters. So we would pick five guys, uh, you know, during you know the intermission or before Sheik's match to do this. So Sheik comes in and all right, Sheik, let's count them off. Let's go. We have the five hundred dollars cash, you know, in the pocket, ready to go. So Sheik reels off like like forty of these things, like like it's nothing, right? Can anybody do twenty? So these five guys come in, you know, big heavy set guys. Of course, I mean, they couldn't do two or three. 
You know, they can do maybe one and a half or two on a good day. So first guy comes up and he does like two. Okay, good job. Sorry, buddy. Next guy can't even pick up the clubs. He's done. Next guy comes in. He does like maybe three. Okay. So then this next guy picks up the clubs, picks it up like this, can't do it, drops on the ground, goes and tackles Sheik in the middle of the ring. He goes after Sheik and tackles him. Sheik like, doesn't even go down. Gets this guy, Sheik is pounding him over the head. Sheik with his curled up toe boots kicks this guy in the mouth. Teeth go flying. This guy is bleeding out of his mouth and bleeding out of his nose. Sheik is yelling at him, You MF, you jabroni, who you think you are messing with Iron Sheik? He's spitting <laughs> on the guy. Crowd is going ballistic. We carry this guy out of the stretcher. Sheik is going off, you know, there's your intermission, this and that. So like you said, you never knew what was going to happen. That was not a work. That was a guy, literally, that just wanted to be part of the show. So so Sheik says, what we, you know, so the owner of the, of the Silver Nugget comes up to me and goes, what happened? He goes, this guy's going to sue us. He goes, he's going he's gonna to sue us. You know, he, the Sheik just kicked, kicked his teeth in. This guy's going to the hospital right now. I said, don't worry about it. I said, you know what we're going to do? Go, we're going to sue this guy. How are we? And, and, and Sheik and I and the owner are in this meeting, not you know, you know backstage. And uh, he goes, what, what do you mean? He goes, this guy's going to sue us. I go, no. I said, it says right on the back of the, t- the ticket. You know, you enter at your own risk and all this other kind of stuff. I said, he came into our domain. He came into the. I said, no, we're going to get this guy and we're going to sue him. I never forget Sheik saying, ah, that good idea, Mr. TC. We sue him. We sue him. Very good. Very good. And then, so sure enough. Uh, fast forward to the next month. So we're coming out and uh, comes uh, uh, approaches me down the aisle. He goes, taps me on the shoulder. He goes, TC, TC, you remember me? I look at the guy like this. He opens his mouth. He's got his teeth. He has two front teeth mi- missing. He goes, I'm the guy that the sheep kicked the shit out of. I go, yeah, man. I go, I go, what, what the heck was that all about? He goes, uh, too much beer, and I wanted to get on TV. I go, well, you succeeded in both of those things, my friend. You were drunk, and you got on TV. So you have footage of this? Oh, yeah. Oh, my gosh. That's on the TV show. Uh, Oh, man. You know, and it's funny because, like, people like, oh, especially now, they're like, oh, let's laugh at the Iron Sheik and, you know, how silly he can be on television. Yeah, the dude's a legit trained amateur wrestler and certified badass. Like, (laughs) yeah, the idea that someone would even try. But, you know, I guess I always hear from wrestlers that that happens. You know, people see them and they're like, you know, it's that like, like, I don't know if it's little man syndrome or what it is. But people are kind of like, oh, I got to test myself. You know, right? when I was working for a local promotion, actually big time wrestling, their new incarnation. Uh, there was a moment during a Brock Lesnar autograph signing where a guy came up and he slammed the table and he was like, you ain't shit to Brock Lesnar's face. And like security ushered him out. And I'm like, how stupid are people? I don't understand. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You, you, you always have those guys that want to be part of the show. They figure that, okay, this is their indoctrination into the business. And we would do autograph signings. Uh, you know, we, we had another guy, uh, you know, and, and Sheik was was a great guy. He was he was funny, and he would always, you know, he had a temper. But uh, again, he felt that he was doing great, you know, business for the promotion as well too. If he calls some guy out, and he goes, "How you like that? How you like that?" You know, and uh, he would call you know some racial slurs and this and that. We're going, Sheik, you can't do this. You got, you know, we're in North Las Vegas or we're in South Sacramento, uh, and, and and he's doing these things. And uh, but yeah, th- you know, the best part of of everything that we did was we had that camaraderie uh, with the guys. 
never had any major issues. Uh, again, you know, a guy like Rob Van Dam, he'll tell you to this day, you know, you know, Rob, you know, comes on my radio show all the time. And he, he remembers those days where I took a shot on, on him and Sabu introduced uh, him. You know, Sabu was such, such a great guy because, you know, Sabu was doing his thing with ECW, but, you know, I decided I was going to make Sabu the champ. It took me one match when I brought him in to see what he could do. And when I told him that, you know, I was going to put him over and make him the champ, he was like, I, I can't be a champ. Uh, that's, that's, that's probably not my DNA. I don't talk and this and that. I go, you don't worry about it. I go, you're going to go over in this market and this promotion like nobody else. And, you know, I'm, I'm probably, you know, he probably wouldn't want me to tell you this, but I'm, I'm going to say it anyway, just to tell you what kind of guy he was. Sabu got to the point where he would refuse pay for me. He would fly himself in because he wanted to be part of this promotion. And, you know, he suggested Rob to come in, Judge Dredd, other people that, that he was training himself. And, you know, he was such a great spokesperson. Cactus, Terry Funk, all those guys were spokesperson. Honky Tonk Man saying, brother, you got you to gotta come into this. You got to be part of this. And, uh, you know, it goes back to what I said earlier. I treat you right. But, like, I mean, I remember trying to pay Sabu and he would tear up the check or not take the money because he says, Hey, what you've done for me, I just appreciate that brother. It's like, Hey, can you come in this and that? And he goes, I got frequent flyer miles. Don't worry. I'll fly me and, and Robin we'll, we'll, we'll come in our own diet. It's like, no, wow. no I'm, I'm going to pay. You. I mean, you know, this is, this is how we do it. But I think he was so appreciative of so many guys that stiffed him and a lot of the other guys in the business that he's saying that this this is run like a real promotion. So I think those are the things that I take out of this. Like, you know, and I still have friendships with him and, and, and Rob and so many of the other guys, you know, to this day that, uh, you know, those memories will, will last forever. People will remember the matches. They'll remember the crowds. They'll remember the innovative stuff we did. I remember the relationships and to mm. still have those relationships and not have one guy say a bad thing about what we did. For me, that's most important. So, uh, based on what uh, Johnny Payne said, did you know uh, about the low-key wrestling training operation Virgil was running in the casino? Uh, so, I think, you know, I, I, I got a chance to see the, the, the podcast with Johnny, and I think, uh, just to clear some stuff up, I think Johnny was a little bit confused because that wasn't happening with, with me. So, Buffalo Jim, who he was referring to, Buffalo Jim was not part of the NWC. Buffalo Jim, I went to him as a as a sponsor. So he was just one of our sponsors. We'd run mm. his commercials, and Buffalo Jim wanted to be part of us, and he wanted to be a manager and that sort of thing. Um, so he really he wasn't part of the NWC. But Buffalo, after uh, I moved out of Vegas and the NWC was done, Buffalo picked up kind of where I left off, and he started his own promotion. So I think a couple of those things, Johnny got kind of the timeline mixed up where he was doing a Virgil because he would reach out to some of those guys, uh, but that wasn't the NWC. So Buffalo did his own promotion years after that. I think that was like two or three years after I, I moved out of Vegas because I left Vegas in, in 98. We were doing the promotion in Sacramento. Okay. And um, how what was your reaction to Virgil coming up with the idea for Jim Neidhart to wear a KKK hood out to the ring? <laughs> Actually, that wasn't Virgil's idea. That was that was my idea, uh, and it was kind of a, a group thing. So, uh, actually, the, the guy who, who really came up with the idea was the Thug. Uh, so, 
because you know the thug was was Anvil's partner. So Thug actually wore the uh, uh, the, the KKK mask, whatever you want to call it, first. So he he wore that in a, in a singles match to really irate people. Now you got to remember the context and the time. This is right after the Rodney King, you know, beatings. The you know, four hours away from us in LA, and we had a I'm not gonna say predominantly you know black crowd, but we you know we were in North Las Vegas. And so we had, you know, that, that type of, of, of element. And so we had to be very careful. You know, we had security, we had police. And again, it was done in yet a tasteful way, but it was just a work and it was a way to just, you know, create some more, uh, you know, some more heat. And that, that's mm. what it was all about. Anyway, but that was, that was the, that was the thugs idea. And then we brought Nyhart. He was, he was so into it. Uh, you know, and that was, that came later. So then we did the thug against Virgil in singles match. And then we told Virgil what we were doing and he was, he was all on board with that. And again, so junkyard dog and Virgil were two of our, our, our mainstays and they were big time crowd favorites. Uh, so then, then, you know, it went to the tag match where we brought Nyhart in and Nyhart and Thug both wore them in the tag team match. So okay. again, just a little clarification where it started. Do you think someone with the uh, with the fame that Nightheart had at the time, if we were in the internet age, do you think he might have been more res- reticent about wearing that KKK to the ring? Yeah, I think so. <laughs> and, you know, that was you know you know overstepping some boundaries, and again, the, the stuff that that not only we did but just society did. Oh things. yeah, this is this is a totally different time in wrestling. This exactly. is yeah, just wrestling, just society in general. That yeah, if you had social media and this and that, you had to be. Very careful. But at that point in time, I mean, we were aware, again, owner of the casino was like, are you out of your mind? What are you doing here? So, again, we were able to push those boundaries uh, without going overboard, and we were able to find the happy medium. And, and, and people that were in the audience and watched the TV shows or the best of to this day, they, they, they still can remember it like it was yesterday. Yeah, I mean, and let's be, you know, let's put it into context. The WWE had WWE had a... You know terrorism gimmicks after nine eleven. So let's, at, you know, at least for you guys, the KKK dudes were the bad guys. So exactly. And again, you know, we, we picked this up too, where you know, with the Iranian crisis, when you know Sheik was the champ and Hulk Hogan defeated him, you know, in eighty three, whatever that was. I mean, that's kind of where that goes. And what, you bring in Nikolai Volkov and you know yeah. the whole Russian thing, we're boycotting the Olympics and all that stuff. So that's where we learned to use that heat. And I, Give Vince McMahon all the credit in the world. And I will say, you know, going back to the Warrior story, I guess, uh, you know, one of my uh, shining moments, so to speak, was, you know, when I did bring in Warrior, uh, that I got a a lawsuit uh, delivered to me from Vince McMahon as he was suing me for using uh, the name Ultimate Warrior and using Warrior because he thought he was still under contract. And then so I went to Warrior with this. He goes, no, brother, this and that. And he actually legally changed his name to Warrior. He's actually on his driver's license. And uh, so, um, you know, responded back to Vince and said, hey, your lawsuit has no merit whatsoever. We're billing him as Warrior. And I uh, never heard from him again. But I thought that was pretty funny that Vince McMahon was worried about a promoter down in Las Vegas, uh, Nevada, who, you know, as he viewed, stole, you know, one of his main guys who's just yeah. coming off one of the most you know successful you know, wrestling pay-per-views and WrestleMania, but you know, uh, his time was done with Vince McMahon. We checked all that out and uh, we used ultimate warriors as long as we could. But then, you know, Warrior said he was, 
using the name warrior. And it's like, okay, you're still using the same getup. Uh, you're still use, you know, dressing the same. And uh, what's the difference if we use ultimate warrior versus warrior? People know who he is. So uh, that was the end of that. There you go. All right. So, as a promoter, I'm sure you're going to appreciate this. It's time for the Take It Home segment, where, uh, you know, uh, the promoter's out. He's screaming at the boys. Time to take this home. We're going to finish this up with some quick succession spots. So, I got some quick fire questions for you to go on here and end the podcast. So, yeah, exactly. (laughs) All right. Uh, Craziest fan interaction at at a show. Craziest fan interaction was probably the situation I told you where the Iranian clubs and the oh, yeah. guy came in and tackled the Sheik. I don't know uh, how you can get any 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 crazier than that. Or I will say, uh, um, you know, in the matches with Terry Funk and Virgil, that was crazy where, you know, they're taken out in the crowd, you know, garbage cans over, over the head, uh, that sort of thing. Um, I had one lady... Uh, who took her purse and started beating up the thug. She was sitting in the front row uh, every week. She was about 75 years old, and she was hitting the thug over her head with a purse, only to find out it was my timekeeper's mother. (laughs) I love it. Those are are a couple. Oh, man. Uh, Let's see. The hardest you've laughed at a show. Uh... Probably after Terry Funk came after me with a branding iron, uh, you know. So uh, yeah, yeah, because you know we 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 had kind of a, a spinoff on Piper's Pit. It was the the doctor's office, which my character, my radio character, was always the doctor. And so we do you know kind of a Piper's Pit thing, and and, and Funk uh, was uh, trying to chase me with a branding iron and, and almost lit me on fire. And then after the, back, the locker room, I was like laughing my my head off. I mean, there's probably so many things that immediately that, that, that comes to my mind. Very nice. Uh, you know, you talk about getting all these guys coming in. What's the worst gimmick you've seen? Worst gimmick, uh, that was involved with me or that just, I've seen in general or just, you know, you've been, you've been at another show and you've seen it and you've gone, Oh geez, what is, what is this? I thought the uncle Elmer thing was, was, was ridiculous. I mean, it was, you know, something like, like, like that. I was never a big guy into the, the hillbilly gym, uncle Elmer, that type of phase. Uh, you know, there's probably a lot, there's probably several other things, but you know, I mean, you booked a little me, haystack. I had a little haystack. Okay. <laughs> and, but that was his gimmick and we knew where it was going to go. But the deal with haystack is he can work. I mean, Wayne could work. I mean, he he could go off the top rope and he could do the moon salts and and so so that 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 was cool. So you know, I, I don't know. Just in our promotion, I was I was very careful about. I didn't want to get too gimmicky. I didn't get one too cornballish. That's why I made sure, like you know, I had hip music, you know, coming out. You know, everyone had good ring entrance music. And you know, again, I was probably maybe a little over the top with that. You know, being so hands on. But then again. You know, uh, you know. I just wanted to make sure it, it came across good for the fans. But you know, outside, I don't know. There, there, there's probably a lot of other real bad gimmicks that you know don't come to my head at the top. If you said something, I go, "Oh yeah, no problem." Uh, so th- this is kind of a touchy feely question, but I always talked about the pure joy in wrestling—the moment that gives you goosebumps, the thing that happens, and you're like, "This is why I love." this sport performance, whatever you're going to call it. Uh, what is that moment when it comes to either before a match, after a match, during a match? What's the time when you're like, this is, this is the moment I love. 
Yeah, seeing it, it hit a crescendo on how you you plan it, and then you see how it's executed. And when you see that, and you see the crowd on their feet, just raucous as can be, music's blaring. And I always say, like with boxing, there's nothing like the initial ring entrance. Boxing and wrestling for me, you know, I go back to those Madison Square Garden days when Hulk Hogan would come down that, that short aisle at MSG or Randy Macho Man Savage or Roddy Roddy Piper. And for us, when we would have those type of ring entrances or then just to have that match go off as, as you planned it, uh, you know, to me, that's it. And I think when the show is over and that night, we would go back, you know, into the dressing room and just say, yes. Like, you know, we scored tonight, fellas. Uh, you know, every match was spot on. The end of the night was always so key on how you wanted to send the fans home. And I always wanted to send the fans home happy. And I think for me, that was like, yes, you know, we did it again tonight. Had any other workers ever surprise you as far as maybe their work rate or how well they were to deal with? You know, because you always hear about, you know, telephone and wrestling, you know, this person's bad, this person's horrible, this person's, you know, blah, 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 this person doesn't work well. But were you were you ever pleasantly surprised by someone you thought, I've heard so many bad things, but this person was awesome? Yeah, yeah, I think there's, there's probably a few guys, um, you know, like that. Um, you know, you never know when you get a big star like that, I mean, how they're going to come in, if they're going to think they're bigger than the promotion or they're not really that good of a worker, uh, but then you're pleasantly surprised. Uh, I think from the veterans, I never really, no one really surprised me because I kind of knew what I was getting. Um, even if it was the first time, you know, they came in and worked. Uh, I will say there were a couple guys that I was disappointed in. Uh, and again, they didn't, they didn't come back uh, to work. But uh, for the local guys and the younger guys, I mean, I think that's where I got wow. That guy's impressed me, and I named a couple already, like with, with Tom Howard, who was Zuma. You mentioned Little Haystacks. That, that, those two guys, I was very surprised. And, uh, and again, when you do that and you show that kind of effort, I'm going to give you the benefit of the doubt. I'm going to give you a chance you know, to work some more and, and even elevate you. Johnny Payne was one of those guys. Didn't exactly know what I was getting from Johnny, Johnny Payne because, you know, self-admittedly, he was a stiff worker. But Johnny was like a sponge. He came in and he, he wanted to be one of the boys. He's willing to do whatever I asked him to do. And uh, I never forget, you know, we did one of the first, uh, again, no one knew who John, Johnny, Johnny Payne was. He was Johnny Pitbull. And he probably told you the story. He's like, well, we're not going to have you be the Pitbull. I got the junkyard dog. I said, we, we can go, let's go in a different direction here. And so that's why we created the psycho gimmick. And I said, I want you just to, to go way over the top here. And he took it to another level, which I didn't even ask him. So I remember the very first, you know, interview we had him do. Uh, he goes, "Let me know when when you're about two minutes, uh, you know, before we're gonna record this." I said, like, "Okay." He goes in and pops the Alka Seltzer in his mouth, and he starts foaming at the mouth. And that was all him. I'm going, beautiful. I said, "Bring that, Johnny." And then he would bring that, you know, into the ring uh, for a ring entrance too. Or, uh, so. He, you know, he, he took it to the next level, which I was pleasantly surprised. And I knew he had a, a wrestling background and he was being trained, you know, in the Bay Area there. I thought that was great. But, uh, you know, he was great. He was one of those guys that I said, you know what, you, you're going places with us because he followed the script. He followed the program. He worked hard on his own. He did whatever I asked him to do. And he was a great team player. Any good uh, ribs the boys ever played on you? 
Uh, I don't know if you call it a rib or not, but uh, uh, the night that Georgie Animal Steel and Jake the Snake made me go have sushi with them, I was not a sushi guy. So we went we went to this restaurant, and they said, "No, brother, you know you're not leaving here until you down like you know you know six of these sushis or whatever." But uh, yeah, I, I never really got ribbed much. I think just because I think there was that initial respect, you know, possibly. Mm. Or whatever, but you know, I wasn't really viewed as an outsider or whatever. So uh, again, you know, they were, you know, I was I was the guy writing the checks and, and putting them up. So it really was more of a partnership, and I think that's a beautiful part of, of it. In but uh, yeah, never really, never got really got you know that like they did with with some other promoters that, that you hear about, you know. But uh, you know, yeah, nothing really to wish. I had something juicy for you, but off the top of my head, it doesn't come. Come to mind. Oh, no worries. Brother, it's about that time. Uh, you know, go ahead and promote your radio show, please, and your social media. Let's get, you know, for people to check you out. You're obviously, you're doing uh, sports right now. Yeah, yeah. I do my sports talk radio show. It's a T.C. Martin show. It airs in Vegas every day, Monday through Friday, uh, 2 to 3 p.m. Uh, real simple. Go to the website, tcmartinshow.com. You can listen live. You can go to the podcast section, listen to any of the the past shows, the interviews are up there. Again, we still hit uh, wrestling. Rob Van Dam is, is a regular on the show. Uh, you know, again, we have these occasional NWC reunion shows, uh, which uh, we do as well, too. We've had, you know, Terry Funk, Cactus on. Uh, you know, like I said, you know, Rob comes on. Uh, you know, Sabu. Uh, so, yeah, you can, if you're a wrestling lover, we still hit that element because there are people here in Las Vegas that still remember those days. Uh, follow me on Twitter at TCMartin21. Any questions whatsoever. And yes, uh, there's pirated stuff that's out there from the NWC. And, uh, you know, people have been trying to, to pitch that to people. And again, that doesn't have any effect uh, on me. But uh, we will be coming out with a, an official line uh, that people, you know, want to see that because I, I realize now that there is a reinvigoration, so to speak, that people want to see these matches and stuff like that. And so uh, we're in the process of putting together those masters and making those available. So you will have them, you know, on DVD, Blu-ray, or however, you know, you can view them instead of you know, a lot of the copies, the pirated stuff that's out there right now that people are viewing. Again, you know, what you're witnessing out there right now is not stuff that, 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 that I'm putting out or we're putting out there. So we'll make that available and, uh, and, and bring it back. And I think for people that are not familiar with it, uh, you know, maybe like yourself, that you could see it in the context, the way it was happening, and uh, in view the full and true story uh, yourself uh, on video. Fantastic. Thank you very much, sir. And just one quick thing to end it out on. Uh, have you been watching the latest WWE product? Do you watch AEW? Is there anything in wrestling that you're still into? You know, not at all. And, uh, and I, I get to this question asked all the time. After I quit promoting, I basically stepped away from wrestling and uh, I still respect it. I love the art of it. But for me, it went in a direction, I would say, probably in you know, the early 2000s, with a, a, a direction that was too gimmicky, you know, too crazy, too pyrotechnic. And I kind of felt like a lot of those, the way that a lot of the old wrestlers felt, too. It's like, this isn't, you know, the way it was. Not that I'm the old man, get off my lawn type of thing, but I always promoted wrestling and viewed wrestling as I want it to be on par with the other sports, whether it's basketball, whether it's football, you know, baseball, and, you know, have a sense for training it, 
but with uh, you know some of the gimmicks uh, and and the way everything is, it just uh, you know for me, I, I kind of lost interest in it. I didn't think the talent was the same uh, as well. And again, you know, I know that uh, you know I think it's great that there are more and more independents uh, that are making a comeback, and I support everyone who has that same vision that I did back in the day. Uh, but it's very hard to compete, you know, unless you you know have a plethora of money. It's hard to compete against the WWEs and the Vince McMahon of the day. And I think, again, I was never trying to compete. We were just trying to carve our niche in our territory, in our area. And I know that it was respected, you know, by guys who worked for those companies because I personal friends of mine worked for WCW, for Ted Turner, who worked for Vince McMahon and the WWF at the time. And uh, we know that there, there was that respect. So, you know, for me, I, I don't watch it now. I haven't watched it in probably a good 15 years and, uh, you know, occasionally, you know, I may pop, pop it on, but it's system. It's not in my blood. And it probably goes to the sense where, you know, again, I'm so involved in, in all the other sports, uh, you know, with my, with my career that, um, you know, I, I just, I, I don't feel that need for it. But, you know, if it was treated back the way it was, you know, back in the 70s and the 80s and the early 90s, I would probably, I'd probably be into it. But, uh, you know, but not saying I don't miss it. Because yeah. I miss the guys, I miss the stories, I miss the fun that we had, and uh, you know, it, it's great that we can still reconnect and relive these moments. Oh, hey, even Tony Schiavone didn't watch wrestling for about ten years after WCW closed. So there you, go. There you, you go. know, so sometimes when you're in it, and then something that you love is is taken off, you're like, I I'm not about this it's anymore. Just right to that point, Paul. You know, obviously, I have a lot of a lot of friends who are former you know NBA, NFL players, Major League Baseball, and this and that. And it's really the same with those guys as well. You know, I mean, one of my good friends played for the Chicago Bulls and I had him on my show every week, you know, talking about the last dance and he just despised talking about it. He goes, I'll come on for you. And I said, he goes, I said, people are going to expect you to talk about it because you're in the, these episodes, the 10 episodes that ESPN aired with the last dance. You're part of those championship teams. And it's like, I, I, I can't stand talking about it because I lived it and a lot of guys don't watch NBA basketball if they're former players and they don't watch the NFL anymore because when, once you live it, that was your business and you don't necessarily like the way that business is, has gone and turned. So, you know, for fans, they quite don't understand that. But if you're a former athlete or coach and that was part of your life for so many years, you know, you, you know, there's some good times, but then again, there, there are some ugly times as well too, that, you just, you know, you want to step away from. Absolutely. Well, sir, you have yourself a good day. I hope you're, uh, you know, good. Luckily, you're in a business that's that's you can still do during uh, all this shelter in place, all this stuff that's going on. Uh, I do recommend NWA Power if you do want to d- dabble back into wrestling. That's on YouTube. Old school feel, closed circuit, small crowd, good. old school gimmicks. They come out, interview, wrestle. Come out, interview, wrestle. Okay. Very old school and good. I would, if you want to dip a toe back in the water, that's the one I would I would go ahead and do. Uh, you have yourself a good day, sir. Thanks, Paul. Appreciate it.